and we'll start with prayer, and then we'll do some more study in Acts chapter 18. Dear Lord, thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, and uh, everyone in these days we're facing difficulties, losses, confusion, and it's a tough world we're living in, but we know that you never change, your word never changes, that you offer comfort, and that you offer hope for those who cling to you and your gospel. Help us, Lord, today in Jesus' name. Be with Eric as he preaches to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to continue to deal with things as they come up and then go forward. Let me start this. Because the reason I want to not spend too much time um, doing reviews, although we definitely want to cover questions and issues that have come up, is that as we go forward here, we have Paul in Corinth, and that's I'm preaching from Corinthians. Then we're going to go in, he's going to go to Ephesus, and Ephesus becomes really a key place that defines the church, the ministry, and so on. And that's something that I'm very interested in because I hope to write about it. But you have to understand something if you're going to write about it. So please feel free, by the way, to, if you have a question or if you think something I say isn't what I really want to say or I don't understand it, that's why we're here. Challenge, stop it and say, wait a second. Are you sure that's what it is? So today, there's some outlines there. But before we go on to that, Brian said he had a question from the last time that we about exemplary judgment. Did I cover that? Well, we didn't. We cover that. Okay. So, uh, is it on? Test, test. Okay. Yeah. The exemplary judgment. God has appointed and knows when each person is going to die. Correct? I'm, I was going to... Well, yeah, what God knows, we don't necessarily yeah, right. know. Yeah. Okay, so what determines whether there's an exemplary judgment or not is my question. Because say there's, say there's an earthquake or say the building falls down or say okay. a bridge collapses. Good question. Okay, what what is the differentiation between exemplary and not exemplary? A prophet, an infallible prophet telling us. Okay. Now, why do we know? Did this come up? Did I show the slide about Herod eaten by worms last time? We talked about it. Did we just talk about it? Okay, I, I won't start a new... PowerPoint for that, but let me explain why that came up. Herod Agrippa the first, there's lots, everybody was Herod. Agrippa one, I believe, was the one that was struck dead in Acts 12. Could somebody look that up? Agrippa two is the one at the end of Acts in Acts 26. But then there was the Herod that Eric was preaching about last week. And that was Herod the Great. And so there's a lot of Agrippas, Herods, and family names. But the question arose, do you, does somebody have that passage in Acts 2, or Acts 12, excuse me? At the very end, he was struck dead because he didn't give God the glory. I brought that up last week. 
And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. That's bad. Okay, that's bad. You don't want that. Now, I said that that was an exemplary judgment. The reason I said that, we know that this happened and Josephus mentions the same event. Okay, only in slightly different terminology. But how do we know it's exemplary? Well, because... Luke, the Holy Spirit filled, inspired writer of Scripture, told us that he didn't give God the glory and he was struck dead. But was Agrippa the first, the first one to never give God glory? Well, nobody does unless God redeems them and helps people see God knows how to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar found that out. So what's the difference between exemplary judgment and something that happens? The error that many people make, and I mentioned this last week, is to assume that every time something similar happens, then that's God's disapproval. But that's corrected earlier when they asked Jesus about who's the worst sinner. An exemplary judgment in the Old Testament is Sodom and Gomorrah. We know so because Moses told us. Now, what's the difference? Is God obligated to do things that we think he should do because that's what we want him to do? No. And what did Jesus say when that question was asked of him? Unless you repent, you will all Likewise, perish. It's worthless. You're lost. What righteousness could we ever have that would exceed that of the most dedicated, noble people in the world? What righteousness could that ever be? Does anybody know? The imputed righteousness of Christ. Is that a misreading? No, that's exactly what the Bible teaches us. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's not just trite. It's absolutely true. So that's why that question came up, because of the statement I made. An exemplary judgment is known like the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, Herod, Agrippa one. if we got the right Herod there in Acts 12. Those are exemplary judgments not proof that God's going to do the same time every time somebody shows up and they say the voice of a God and not a man. People do things like that all around the world and they'll get struck dead. And so we have to learn from what the Bible says, what his attitude towards some sin is. That's what we learn. And so I was refuting the idea that God has to do the same thing every time it gets bad. He doesn't. Everybody's been warned. What was the other one? I'm depending, I'm going on my memory, which sometimes it isn't perfectly accurate. I don't know about yours. (laughs) But remember, somebody said, warn them. I have brothers. If somebody comes, let me go send somebody to warn them. Could you know that one, Eric? Uh, Luke 16 with Lazarus and the rich man. Yes. Yeah. And so we're in Luke Acts. Yeah, amen. Okay, 
What did, what did it say there? Go ahead. Yeah, um, the rich man, he's in hell or Hades. Hades, yes. And he asks that Abraham would send a warning to his brothers so that they wouldn't die in their sins and end up in the same place. And Jesus' point is if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if someone was even raised from the dead. And so the point is, if you won't listen to the scriptures, you're not going to look at the miracles and be convinced. And right. of course, Jesus is referring to his and own that's resurrection. pointing forward, that's a preview of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, and they still didn't believe. And if you, now you go to other scriptures like John, if you want to be blown away by how wicked sin is, John 11 and 12, it's just unbelievable. There's a mobile one somewhere. Oh, there it is. Could you bring it over to, to Beth? Just think about this. What happened in John 11? Eric talked about this. The four-day guy, he stinketh, says the King James. He was raised into a mortal body. And in John 12, the religious leaders wanted to kill him to erase the evidence. Yeah. Yes, Beth. That was, that was what... I was thinking about that very time, and I was wondering, do we know the timing of Jesus' uh, story telling about the rich man and Lazarus and Abraham? uh, In Luke? Yeah. That's all laid out. Uh, I really appreciate Kenneth Bailey, and he has the travel narrative, and I think it holds. It starts in Luke 9.51. Uh-huh. And there's a reverse parallel construction, and it goes to a center point. And I don't remember where it is. I got to find that slide somewhere. I found it the other day, but it's on somewhere in my computer. And then it goes back the other way. And in the end, it comes to the triumphal entry. Okay. Had he had he raised? He hadn't raised Lazarus from the dead yet. Had no, that he? was a parable. In, in, in no, Luke. I, I mean the real uh, Oh, in John. Mary, no, Martha, that we don't know. John is, we don't have a chronology there. But what, wasn't that, wouldn't that be something that would stick in their mind, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and even, you won't even believe if someone comes back from yeah. the dead because he was going to raise Lazarus. Yeah, I don't know if we can interpret, use John to interpret Luke, but they had all kinds of signs. What about walking on water? What about miracles? Well, yeah, I know, but I just thought it was such a coincidence that Jesus said that, you know. It's, it's true, but it's in Lucas' preview of the rejection of Messiah. Well, yeah. Okay, yeah. Luke uses reviews and previews. And uh, let's go forward. I'll show you how he does that. I'm going to go out on a limb and give an interpretation that I can't find in any of the other, any of the commentaries. So let's go forward a little bit. I wanted to go back and cover that question. Now, excuse me, Acts 18, 18, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren. Now, where was he? He was in Corinth. And if you remember from last time, they appeared before Gallio. We showed evidence from archaeology that the dating of Gallio is very clear because we have extra-biblical and archaeological sources that show what it is. Okay? And I read Gallio inscription to you. And then 
Sosthenes, who's mentioned in 1 Corinthians. They beat him. They appealed to this Gallio. He wasn't concerned, so they stayed there for a while. And then left with Priscilla and Aquila, who had come previously. And they go on now to Chancrea. So this is going to give us what some call a difficult passage. And I guess it is. Let me read it, and then we'll talk about it. Paul, having remained many days longer, remember he's a year and a half in Corinth, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Chincrea, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. There's the one that everybody, what's that? And why is he doing that? And what does it mean? And we don't know. Some people say it's a Nazarite vow. So I pursued that possibility. And it doesn't seem to add up because that happens later. He does take some sort of a vow when he goes on up to Jerusalem. And so let me quote Dr. Schnabel, who's one of my better sources, as far as scholarly sources, and says this. Luke comments that before Paul embarked on the ship to Syria, he had his hair cut because he had made a vow. Since Luke provides no details concerning the vow, several questions must remain unanswered. Was the vow a Nazarite vow? Numbers 6, 1 through 21. Most scholars assume it was. If this was correct, Paul had asked God for some kind of intervention, promising something in return. Assuming that Paul Schnabel fulfilled the requirements set out in Numbers 6, 2 through 8 for the duration of a Nazarite vow, he would not have imbibed any intoxicating drink or cut his hair or defiled himself by touching a dead body. But see, when you add all that up, it doesn't really, the timing doesn't work, things don't work. And we don't have to fill things in. We just need to know why Luke told us this. So I was talking earlier to Brian, who, who got here early, and telling him how I think Luke is telling us preview. This is how I, I see it. Now, if we look here, what do we have here? Priscilla and Aquila. Now, the two of them are mentioned often, a husband and wife. And I happen to have all the times there are mentioned. And I want to tell you something about this that I, don't, I think if we can read Luke-Acts, we can see why. Here is Acts 18.2. We just, that was earlier. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave. We covered that. Historical, A.D. 49, and so on. Verse 18, the one we have here. Now it's Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 26 of Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila. Acts 18, 26. But then when we go to Romans 16, 3, it's Prisca, which would be Priscilla, short version, and Aquila. 
Same in First uh, Corinthians sixteen nineteen, and two Timothy four nineteen, Prisca and Aquila. There's no big deal to that, but it becomes one when we get all these questions. So why is it Aquila and Priscilla, and then Priscilla and Aquila? What's, why is Luke telling us this? I'm going to tell you. <laughs> um, here's what I believe, having studying Luke Acts for decades now. Luke Acts is a two-volume work. Luke introduces things brilliantly at the beginning of Luke that are foreshadowing what's going to happen in Acts. And even in Acts, there's foreshadowing. One of the things that Luke does, well, he'll mention somebody who's just, if you if you never read it, and the first time you ever read Acts, who's Saul? Why is he holding the clothing of the people stoning? Well, we'll find out later. We already know, but that he introduces characters that show up later. Ideas that show up later. Jerusalem who rejects the prophets earlier in, in, in Luke. And this whole travel narrative is going up to Jerusalem. By the way, when you're in that part of the country, you're always going up to Jerusalem. The irony of Luke Acts is that Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets who come to them, that's not what you expect. But that's Luke Acts. Luke is concerned about Jerusalem. And he's also concerned that the Great Commission be fulfilled. So what is one of the major themes of Acts? The fulfillment of Joel 2.38. Is that correct? This is that which was spoken of the prophet. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Now Luke isn't concerned about uh, things that we think about now. He's concerned to show that the Bible has given a prophecy is being fulfilled. Now, if you go to the beginning of Luke, and the Holy Spirit comes upon people, and someone could do this. I've done it a few times. I don't have the data. But who prophesies? Wasn't it Anna? Somebody can correct me. Look at the beginning. Anna, Mary. Remember Zechariah? It was introduced, and it was his turn, and he was he couldn't say anything, and then he was given the ability. Just look at that. I believe that the beginning of Luke is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in Acts to prove that Acts, that Joel two thirty eight is being fulfilled. And so, why would Luke, if he's trying to convince people, have women prophesy? I'm sorry, I think it's Joel 2, 28 through 32. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah, no problem. My memory is not, I don't know if it's ever was any good. That's why you correct me. Please, always do that. Tell the real one. I think it's Joel 2, 28 through 32. I should probably Joel 2, 28, not 38? Exactly, right. Yeah. Okay, Eric is right. I'm not, but we want to get it right. I'm going from memory. But that's the big thing, that Joel's being fulfilled, okay? And so some of these things that people, why this, why this, why this? Why does, was it, Stephen had seven daughters who were prophetesses? 
Is that correct? No, who was it? Philip. Philip. I'm going to go ahead and go from memory. You correct me. <laughs> Luke acts as a lot. Well, why say that? Well, who were they? What did they say? And was it binding on the church? And who can say what? And who can do what? The point is, Luke is showing us that Joel 2, 28 to 32 is being fulfilled. Now, in that regard, let's see if we can define the last days. Do you want to read that, uh, Eric? Look up Joel and read it correctly so we don't confuse everybody. What's the last days? We were talking about that, too. Go ahead. I've got it here. Uh, Joel 228 through 32, it says... It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Verse 30 says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors, whom the Lord calls. Great. Do you mind having a discussion with me about this? How does that work? See, that's where eschatology becomes important. Okay, so when do the last days start? When do these other things happen? And we're concerned about chronology, and so were the disciples. So at the beginning of Acts, they say, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What did Jesus say? The times and epochs are fixed by the fathers, not for you to know, but you shall be my witnesses. Okay, so are we in the last days or not? I want to I know. Amen. Are we? Absolutely. When did they begin? They began with the first advent of Christ. But the significance of Christ is he's the one, according to the book of Acts, who ends up sending the Spirit. So the sending of the Spirit and the Messiah coincide to the last days. So the ascension of Christ bodily to the right hand of the majesty on high, according to Hebrews. mentioned Psalm 110.1 is the most cited verse in the New Testament. He is reigning. Now some people say, well, that's it. He'll reign until when? Forever and ever, until the church conquers the world. I, I found a paper I wrote about that. Is there anything more? Is God done with the Jews? Will there ever be anything that happens that's savingly happening to Jerusalem? How does that work? Could you... Uh, you know this better than I. Just lay out the timetable. Yeah, so the last days... Um, going back to the book of Numbers, do you remember Moses? He... Um, there was concern that this Medad and Eldad were prophesying. Yes. And remember Moses says to Joshua, Joshua complains. And Moses says, are you concerned for my sake that these men are prophesying? I'm paraphrasing. But then Moses says, oh, that all of God's people would one day prophesy. And so that foreshadows Joel where it looks forward to this time where one day the spirit would be poured out, not just on authoritative spokesmen, but upon all of God's people. And that doesn't mean that you and I are prophets and apostles in the office sense, but the idea is that we have the, the spirit of the Lord upon us. It brings us to faith. So Jesus comes on the scene of history. The Holy Spirit does miracles demonstrating who he is. 
if they don't listen, these Jewish leaders, to what the Spirit says, they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit because they attribute the power of the Spirit to Beelzebul. It's the Spirit's role to bring people to the confession of Christ. Jesus dies a propitious death on the cross. He's raised from the dead. He ascends into the heavens, and he sends the Spirit, the very Spirit that was prophesied in Joel chapter 2, the very Spirit that Moses looked forward to that would come upon not just certain people, but upon all people. And what Bob is rightly showing is that as this progresses through Acts, like the the daughters who prophesy of Philip, this is being fulfilled. It's proof that what Joel prophesied is being fulfilled. Amen. But we have all kinds of other questions that Luke isn't answering. Exactly. And so Jesus, as Bob said, is seated at the right hand of God, and he remains there until he comes to bring the glorious kingdom because he is the Son of Man in in Daniel chapter 7 who comes before the Ancient of Days. He's given a kingdom that will be without end. Right. So he is the final kingdom that will come about. So right now he's residing in heaven until the time comes for him to bring the millennial kingdom. And uh, what did the angel say? This Jesus whom you seek will return the same way. Exactly. Amen. In Acts 1. Okay. So... And there's some good material that we that Eric's taught about this, but the last we're still in the last days. Okay, the last days began then. When does it end? Seventy, but we don't know when that starts. So the claim that we've made for decades now is that the last days begin at the beginning of Acts, at the ascension and the commissioning and the pouring out of the Spirit. And when Daniel's 70th week begins, we don't know. And so that's why we teach imminence. Is that right? Yeah. At any time, we don't know, suddenly and unexpectedly. So if we think things are worse now than they were in 400 AD, 500 AD, 600 AD, 1300 AD, 1400, 1560, they were in the last days then. We're in the last days now. It might, a lot of things will happen. Here's the question has to be answered. Why are we still here? (laughs) Yeah, we're here because of grace, but what's our role in the meantime? To preach Christ. I've been spending so much time digging through my old files trying to get organized. I've written about a lot of these things over the decades. And eschatology matters in this sense. If you get the role of the church wrong, everything is wrong. Okay? So I've got those. I promised Eric I'd give him the papers I wrote on this in 1993. Because people are seeing the role of the church. You want to bring the mic over to Mark? Oh, Laverne. Okay. Yeah, um, earlier, you, you didn't know I had raised my hand, but um, didn't Peter, after the Spirit was poured out and the people prophesied in their different languages, didn't he say that was the fulfillment of Joel also? Yes, absolutely. Sorry. And But what were they speaking about? Yeah, in, you know what's so beautiful about that, Laverne? Good point. Is that when he says this is what Joel had said, what is the point of Peter's sermon? He preaches about Christ, the supreme evidence that Christ is who he says he is, is the empty tomb, Psalm 16.10. But then he preaches, remember at the end of Joel 2.32, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He says that name is Christ. 
So the whole point of his sermon is, who should you call on to call upon the name of the Lord? That's Joel 2.32, it's Jesus. This is the so one, then the he point. quotes scripture and preached Christ. Exactly. I want to correct another misunderstanding I've heard. I've read, I wrote an article we did with some other group I was with, Faith at Risk. How do you discern a true work of the Spirit? Now, there's, we've got to get our categories right. Some people have said, and I found a, something I've written to a pastor who rebuked me 30 years ago or whatever, you're putting God in a box. And so the point was, God's God, he can do whatever he wants. But it's a, that's a category error. The issue isn't that we know that there's things God won't do and cannot do because of his holy nature. God cannot lie. The issue isn't what the Holy Spirit is able to do in his power and God's sovereignty. The issue is how do we know it's the Spirit and not somebody else? Some fake, false spirit or a demon or a sleight of hand. How do we know the difference? So they're taking an argument about epistemology, how we know, and turning it into an argument about ontology, who God is and what he's capable of doing. And a lot of people want to argue some category switch, and then they don't, we're not talking about the same thing. Yes, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> to your point about what is the role of the church, we got a church down at the end of our block. they got a big banner on the church. And uh, here's what they say the church is. It says, be the church. Protect the environment, care for the poor, forgive often, reject racism, fight for the powerless, save earthly and spiritual resources, embrace diversity, love God, enjoy life. That's what the purpose of the church is. Okay. That's United Church of Christ. Now, let me comment on that first on that one. That's my point. First of all, who belongs to the church? Whoever has been born of God, whose sins are forgiven. And so it's about us knowing what a true work of the Spirit looks like. See, that's the problem. Uh, the emergent, I found the notes I took when I went out to their conference and heard Frankie and I heard Moltman. I took notes of what he said. What was the problem? They said, we're going to look around and see what God's doing and join it. What you read, Norm, and thank you, that's a very astute observation. They assume in their imagination, this must be what God's doing. Because they don't know. They just assume Hegelian panentheism, everything's, you know, whatever, there's the Marxist version or the social, national socialist version. Everything's somehow going to get better one way or another. But how do you know what God's doing by looking at somebody's lawn sign? <laughs> or by, oh, look at that, they're carbon dioxide. That can't be from God. Never mind that we'd all be dead if there wasn't any. So if we don't know what God said, we don't know the, what the church age is here for, whenever it ends, and we don't know what the gospel is, and we don't know what it looks like, when the Holy Spirit does fall upon someone, what, how do we know? Because they preach Christ. Yes. Yeah, you know, just to the whole point that we're talking about, I almost brought this up last week, but I didn't want to, you know, get off on a sidetrack. But 
if you think about it, I've got a radical idea that we should just define the church according to what the Bible says, you know, just call me kind of. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. Exactly. And here's the thing. This is why I support. The point is is just excellent. If you look at all of the things, and this won't be exhaustive, you know, we're to love each other. We're, you know, because the world hates us. We're to we're to uh, edify each other. We're to disciple each other. There's all these things we're supposed to do, but the most important thing is the uh, evangelism and, and the sharing the word of Christ because every other purpose of the church can be better done in heaven. When we're, you know, when we're in heaven, when, you know, we will have perfect uh, uh, communion with each other, perfect communion with God. We, we will have all of the discipleship we need. We can ask Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> you know, but the only thing that the church can do better here on earth than it can do up in heaven is, and this is why we're still here. Preach it's to Christ. share the word of Christ, to right. preach Christ. That's the that's the main reason, and you just can't get away from that if you I study the Bible. I got a question: Does God literally have grandchildren? <laughs> no. <laughs> so if we're all saying no, then how come a huge percent over the in church history? Let's just look at church history in Western civilization. How much of the time, the effort, the talent, the money, the brick and mortar going into creating something that will go on for generation after generation for the descendants of Christians? Why do that if God has no grandchildren? And are God's elect, now I know some people have our time with that, but we got to accept the terminology of the Bible. Are they that because of their genealogy, whether it be even being Jewish doesn't save you. It's just a remnant in the end that are saved at the end of the Daniel 70th week. Now, I believe in literal Bible prophecy. So does Eric. We've taught it for years. What happens at the end of the millennium? There's another rebellion. Think about it. Now, some people say there will never be a millennium. The church is here to conquer the world and force them to obey Christ whether they want to or not. And I've I've got a paper I'm going to give you, Eric, about that. I promised yesterday. And I don't believe that. So if you think that human nature is perfectible as it is now, how could it be that even when Jesus returns... It does literally rule for a thousand years. There are people in that millennial kingdom that aren't Christian because they have children. They start another rebellion. Why would God do things that way? I believe the revealed reason is to show how sinful sin really is. And if, and if the, they said, now are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus said, the times and the epochs are fixed by the Father's authority. But you should be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit will fall upon you. Jesus ascended. And I believe the church age goes on as long as God intends it to. And not everybody believes that. But I think it's very biblical. Back to Luke Acts. Let me get back to what I was trying to do on this point. Just read Luke Acts as a two-volume work. Luke is one of the most brilliant writers 
Luke introduces ideas in the beginning of Luke that are, find their end in Acts, the end of Acts. It's a preview, previews and previews. Why, why did these people prophesy at the beginning of Luke? To show that now is the time that this is starting to come to fulfillment. This is the beginning. Why does Luke have the travel narrative go from Luke 9.51 to the triumphal entry in a brilliant layout to show that Jerusalem rejects every prophet that's ever been sent. And they did it again. Why the lament? Does Jesus really lament? How often, and I I hope I'm still in Luke, how often I would have gathered you this could be Matthew too, there's a lot of similarities, but you would not have it. Why the lament? Because these things have been hidden from your eyes. It's a divine passive. Why would God hide that from the eyes of the ruling council of Jerusalem? Why hide messianic salvation? That doesn't get anybody off the hook. Moral evil is always judged, it's wicked. Because God is still going to fulfill Luke 2.28. Yeah, Joel, Joel 2.28. I need a fact checker sitting right here. Okay, you get the idea. Um, anyhow, that's all the way through. It's just unbelievable. I don't think anybody could make this up. It had to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. So why Aquila and Priscilla? Why not just have Aquila and then that's more acceptable? No. Your sons and daughters prophesy. That's why I think it is. I print it out every time here. The order's reversed. We don't have to enforce anything. God, what we have to enforce is the gospel and then the order in the church is that men are to be elders, but not just any man is qualified to be an elder. But the sons and daughters will prophesy, but how do you know it's the true work of God? Because Christ is confessed. Christ is preached. That's how you know. God, God is fulfilling the thing. Now, why did Paul take a vow? Scholars don't know. I'll tell you my answer. It may be wrong, but I, it's based on reading. It's a preview. Luke likes to put ideas in the reader's mind so that when it comes up again, it doesn't seem shocking. I'm not saying Paul didn't take a vow, but he does. Right here in this context, why? What kind? Why did he do this? We'll find out the why later. Okay. Now, see that red phrase, if God wills? I think that's another preview. I woke up early in the morning and I thought about Aquila, Priscilla, the vow, and if God will. See that? Okay, so why does he take a vow? We don't know here. Why, did, why the vow? Why if God wills? It's a preview. Wait until we get into um, Acts 20 and 21. Remember the prophet Agabus is saying? He ties the, he visually like the prophets of old tied something around. This is what they're going to do. They were begging him, uh, don't go up, don't go up, don't go up. 
And he says, why are you doing this and breaking my heart? So there's this debate. And then finally he said, I'm going to go. I'm willing to die. And they said, the will of the Lord be done. I think it's a preview. He does take a vow when he's going up. And there's some other things done. Why? I'll give you a preview of what I, I think the best reading is. To just show how wicked sin is and to reinforce the theme of Luke Acts that Jerusalem is the place that rejects the prophets that are sent to her. So in the life of Jesus, for 951 to Luke 19 or wherever the triumphal entry was, he's going up to be rejected. Paul, not sinless, not the Messiah, someone from who was a zealot who attacked Stephen when he preached the gospel, who was an enemy, who was as zealous for Israel as anybody has been, was stopped in his tracks by God. He was miraculously converted, and he was sent by God. And now he's going up to Jerusalem, even as a converted Jewish leader, he'll be rejected too. But who's the, who rejects him? Not just the people in charge of the temple, Christians. Have you ever read that? What did James tell Paul when he got there? If you know Eric, I think it's in chapter 21. See if you can find 22. I believe James tells Paul, we have 3,000 men who are zealous for the law. And James is talking about Christians. I believe. I'm willing to be corrected. And they're, very, they're not very happy. This is not going to turn out well. If anybody finds that, I'll, I'll go on while you're looking at that. Let's, when you find it, get my attention. So Aquila and Priscilla, another preview that we had earlier in 18, two, they show up throughout the New Testament, husband and wife. They're probably fairly wealthy. They can travel. They, and they become key people that God uses to establish churches. Otherwise, look for the name James 3000. I may be wrong about that. I'll correct myself next time I teach Sunday school. So that's a preview of my opinion. Here's the map. Corinth to Chenkria. That's where they go. And then they go off across the sea. 2117. 2117. Someone, Eric, you see it? 2117? I'll, I'll read for a few verses here. After we arrived in Jerusalem, this is 2117, the brethren received it gladly. Verse 18, it says, In the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Verse 20, it says, And when they heard it, when they, heard it they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands were are, there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. So then what happened? Yeah. He ends up rejected there. It go, well, that, that's sort of a process. He gets called before kings and authorities. And the, the big battle during the time of the New Testament 
was to not have two churches, a Jewish church that keeps the law and a Gentile church that's free from the law of Moses. There's to be one church that comes up in Galatians. So I may be just inferring from the whole narrative, but the first problem was it was hard to get Jewish Christians to accept Paul. And I think that the haircutting, the vow, he, later there's a charge that comes up before authorities that Paul had actually took a Gentile into the temple and desecrated it and therefore riled up the Jews and the Romans who wanted to keep peace. And it was a false charge. And so there's concern to, to, for Paul to prove that he didn't do what he's later accused of doing. He actually did more than he normally would do, the keeping the vow, being a pious Jew that he normally wouldn't even have to do. And later the charge comes up and it's a false charge. And he appeared before kings and he preaches Christ. That's my preview from my mind from 20 years ago when I, when I wrote about this. Feel free to correct it. Next week, whenever we have Sunday school, correct it if it's not right. But that's how I think the reading is best seen. Because he didn't have to do any of that. He went, he went beyond. Yes, go ahead. I know. I was going to say that verse 21, this really helps. It says, and they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, right. nor to walk according to that customs. Um, That's it. Is, That's it. Yeah. It, what's interesting about that is the same charge ends up leveled against Jesus prior. You know, you're, you're forsaking Moses. Well, no, he's actually fulfilling Moses. Right. That's so the, sh- the narrative intent is that Jerusalem rejects the ones God sends. They rejected Messiah. Paul comes. They reject him. And false charges were laid against him. There's the answer right there. So the better we read this, the better we understand Now, what happens when we get all the way to Acts 26? Paul's brought before authorities. And what did he do? He testified about Christ. I published this in 2007, brought before kings. It was for Worldview, Christian Worldview Network, I think, at the time. And in this case, it was about the seeker movement. And I quoted the Washington Post... Now, I, this is ironic. I think I'm, well, never mind. It's, we don't agree with the Washington Post, but here's what happened. Washington Post, December 5, 2006. I quote them. That would be footnote number one. Let me find it here. What happened is this. E.J. Dion Jr. of the Washington Post wrote an editorial, now this is about Barack Obama, about Obama's visit in which he said, now this is 2006 before the election, that Obama received a standing ovation suggests that, now this is about Rick Warren, Warren is right to sense that growing numbers of Christians are tired of narrowly partisan politics and share his interest in the whole bird. 
Now, why was this interesting to me? I actually went out and visited and preached the gospel to Rick Warren, but this is before all that. In their different spheres, says Warren and Obama are both in the business of retailing hope. Now, this was written and published for Christian Worldview Network, 2007, I think I published this. How ironic. How ironic. I'll just tell this story now. Why is the church age going on? What's our message? What are we here for? What are we supposed to preach? So I read these things and I thought, well, if you get a chance to talk to dignitaries who may end up being president, which this person did, what are you supposed to do? Tell them about the whole bird? Where's Christ? Where's forgiveness of sins? And uh, in Matthew 10, continuing, I'll just quote, Jesus predicted his disciples would be brought before kings and governors. That happens in Acts, doesn't it? Why? Why? Just read what they said whenever they got there. They preached Christ. Agrippa II, Festus, look it up, Acts 26. Let's just quote Matthew. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, it is the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. Matthew ten seventeen to 20. Now, read Acts. What did they say? What did Paul say? That Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. That he was raised from the dead. That forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. Yes. Uh, Mike, to... The whole, oh, that's Obama, that's uh, Rick Warren. He wanted to create a three-legged stool of government, business, and religion, and then use that three-legged stool to solve the problems of the world. And I ended up out there with a massive place, just full of purpose-driven leaders from all over the world that he could gather there, And they were going to do the whole bird. And so that means we're going to solve your business problems. We're going to solve your social problems. We're going to get it all together. It's just post-millennial to the hilt. But when we asked him, well, why don't you preach Christ? I'll tell you some more stories. Long I'm telling stories. The old men get to tell stories. Um, This is unbelievable. And so after we preached Christ and told Rick Warren and all these, can we record it? So here's people all around, recorders going, two, two of us, Luther and me. Chris Roseboro wanted to know about forgiveness of sins. I said, preach Christ. And that's what we need to do. And then I preached Christ, not implying that nobody there was saved, though I doubted it, I just told them, this is what that looks like. Who is Jesus Christ? The creator, 
virgin born son of God, the sinless one, died for sins, all of that. Preach Christ. If people don't know they're dead sinners, what good is the three-legged stool, by the way, if you go to hell? Besides that, my dad used to milk cows with a one-legged stool, so when they kick you, it would, you wanted to fall over. Anybody ever, ever had a dairy farm? They had a pig? Because if you stayed put, that would hurt worse, worse than the cow kick you. Nevertheless, I digress. The whole bird is, oh, I'm here to help everybody. So when that got all done, they all recorded. Guess what? None of those recordings were published. I kind of wish they would. The reason I preach Christ is if our critics published it, they'd be unwittingly sharing the gospel. So when people say, well, we contacted so-and-so, but they never got back to us. But where's a good place to preach the gospel? So I wrote this to justify preaching Christ before anybody. 2008, they had the debate. It's just awful. Dear ones, why are we here? Are we here for the whole bird, which is never going to be confessing Christ, are we here in this age so that as the Holy Spirit is poured out, your sons, your daughters, young men will dream dreams, old men, see visions, however, I probably got it backwards. Because that's who God's going to use. Everyone born of God is sent to preach Christ. And to fill out that story, because I wrote this before it was all done. The head handler, Rick Warren, gave me his business card and said, anytime you want to call, call me, email me, do it. I've been assigned to, to help you understand whatever it was. I never did until after the inauguration in 2000, was it 2008, 2009, the election? He spoke at this big gala out of Washington. Okay. The only time I contacted, what you call it, chief of staff. And then Christians were being, how come this guy's up there with this liberal doing what he's doing? And so I, I emailed him. I said, why didn't Rick, if he's going to be in front of all these kings, they call him Pastor Rick, why didn't he preach about Christ? Why did he do this generic, everybody's good? And you know the answer? Well, Pastor Rick's never been afraid to talk about Jesus or Christ. Switch the topic. I didn't accuse him of being afraid. I accused him of not doing it. Maybe he believes that if he's nice to Barack Obama, then we're going to have the new world order. I don't know. I don't know heart. Here's why I'm sharing all this with you. It's really perilous right now. Uh, as we watch the news, if there's a Christian who's not grieved, I don't know who it is. Health care is a problem. Delivery of goods is a problem. Jobs are a problem. Anybody can have a job. Totally different. Have you ever seen it where it, they're begging people? $25,000. You want to drive a truck? We'll give you 25000 if you take the training and agree to drive a truck. And you get a huge salary. No, I don't want to do it. Have you ever seen that? I haven't seen it. Perilous times. Why are we here? Because of Acts 2. Because of the Great Commission. Because of Joel 2, 28 to 32 being fulfilled. 
still and let's prophesy not anything new not new revelations but that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners that we need to repent and believe the gospel how long will this happen I don't know so then they come to Ephesus we're out of time but think about this he went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews you know it's probably easier for him to get into the synagogue to preach Christ than it is for a preacher to get into a church and preach Christ I'm not lying that thing that Norm saw suppose I say you know I'd like to go into your church I've got a seminary degree I've written a couple books I'm, I'm nobody important but I would love to preach Christ in your church would they let me do it Paul went into a synagogue and did it but you can't go into a church and do it how is it that you can't preach Christ in a church because it's not a church it's a pagan organization well that's my pulpit for today here (laughs) when will the church age end does anybody know No. no in the meantime we all need hope comfort courage conviction consolation we need one another we need to pray for one another we need to be solid in Christ and the gospel because we don't know who God's going to save let's close with prayer thank you Lord for your goodness your kindness your mercy that you could use totally unexpected people and send us forth to preach the truth and Lord give Eric as he preaches to us comfort and grace and strength and courage and we pray for the congregation that we would be there for one another and pray for one another and whatever happens we're going to stand firm by your grace in the gospel we ask you to help us do that in Jesus name Amen